This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello! Welcome to the Digital Banks episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. My colleague, Emily Peck of Axios, is off on vacation. As normal, though, Elizabeth Spires is here. Hello. And much more excitingly, apologies, Elizabeth, Ed Lee is here. Edmund Lee, welcome. Welcome back, Hello. I should say. Thank you very much. It's always fun to be here. We love having you on this show. You can be Emily for today. I can do a pale invitation. Yeah, sure, certainly. You used to be a media reporter. You now have some <laughs> highfalutin job at the New York Times that no one understands. But um, Yeah, but that's how it works. You, you enter management and then you have sort of this very fuzzy, fungible you know, job description. <laughs> so you have a fuzzy, fungible job at the New York Times, but you used to be a media reporter. I know you're still a media reporter at heart, so we are going to talk about media deals. We're going to talk about the way the media covers the inflation data and what we can learn from that, what it means politically and economically. And we're going to talk about neobanks. We're going to talk about Goldman Sachs, Marcus, and all of the other digital banks. And we're going to talk about my thesis that there really haven't been any successful ones. It's all coming up and a Slate Plus on Tesla on this week's Slate Money. So let's start with the news of the week, which is that inflation was zero, which is big news. Or maybe it's that inflation went down from 9.6 to 8.5. Or maybe it's that inflation is high at 8.5. I don't actually want to talk about inflation. What I want to do is I want to talk to Ed about numbers and literacy and communication. The one thing I definitely got from reading Twitter, from trying to follow the news cycle on this inflation report, and generally from talking to people is that communicating numbers is really hard. And this number in particular seems to be incredibly difficult to communicate. So explain why that is. Oh, my God, you're going to me for this? All right. Well, you're, you're, <laughs> I did, you're, you're, you're I did the, bring it up. You're, the, you're topic, the journalist -ist. Yeah. Oh, I am the journalistist. Okay. All right. For those that don't know, journalist -ist is the journalist for journalists. Is the most journalistic. -y. <laughs> yes. Well, the reason why this has come up for me, at least, it's a number everyone's been watching, right? Inflation actually is a term of art, you know, CPI, all that kind of stuff. But everyday people have started to adopt this language, right? They're speaking this language and oftentimes they're using it incorrectly. Let's just clarify here because I'm a descriptivist and not a prescriptivist. The way that the term inflation is used in the general demotic day-to-day -day life of America is not the same way that economists use it. And economists have this habit when anyone uses the word inflation to immediately pounce down their necks and say, you're using that word wrong. It doesn't mean what you think it means. But ultimately, if everyone is using inflation to mean a certain thing, then that's what it means. That's what it means. Basically, stuff costs more, right? That's how people use it. That's the general realm in which you know, economists are thinking about things. The CPI numbers came out this week, and the June number, this refers to the uh, the July number, sorry, right? Is that yeah. what we're looking at now? Exactly. The July number. 
Well, let's be clear about this, because the July number is, again, one of these things which people think, well, there's a number that came out in July. And I think the number that came out in July was like 229.46 or something, right? right? And you're like, but no one ever quotes that number. Yeah, it's abstract. It's like, what does that mean? It's a completely, it's basically they set the CPI at 100 in whenever it was, 2012 or whatever. Um, It was earlier than that. And then... You know, it's been going more or less up ever since. And it's, it's, this is like the nominal dollar price of a basket of goods adjusted for eight gazillion different things. And that number is now 229. Doesn't tell you anything. So then journalists need to try and convert that number into something meaningful. I think also you have to sort of contextualize things because people's baseline expectations are always moving. And we've talked a lot on this podcast about the vibes-based economy. And a lot of the way people perceive inflation is a vibe. It's not, it doesn't matter what the number is. It's, you know, how do I people like that, still the feel vibe. about it? Well, it is. It's, right. it's a vibe. And as Ed said very correctly, uh, the vibe is things cost more. And there is this feeling out there, which is a real feeling, and I don't discount it at all, that inflation will only not be a thing when things no longer cost more, which is to say that in order for inflation to not be a thing, prices will need to go back down to where they were. Now, there is not a single economist anywhere on the planet who thinks that is what inflation means. But there are a lot of human beings who think that that is what inflation means. Right. I was paying whatever it is, $5 for a cup of coffee. I used to pay $3. I want $3 again. Of course, that's very simplistic. I think the reason why the number is interesting is because whatever number people pick, right? Because that's the other thing about this number is that 8.5% is what they call the headline number, right? You take the full gamut of stuff, including things like oil and commodities like wheat and cereal, whatever, it moderated from the previous month. Prices still went up, but they didn't go up as much as the previous month did. So wait, no, I mean, yes and no, right? Yes and no, right. So depending on which news outlet you were consuming, the headline number was 8.5% or the headline number was zero. When the number came out at 8.30 a.m. on Wednesday morning, the thing that everyone jumped on and like, finance twitter was not eight and a half the thing that everyone jumped on on finance twitter was zero well and that was the news outlet you're referring to i think is the biden administration twitter account right that's <laughs> but was, also but also the the thing that i cared about as a financial journalist was what happened in july what happened in july is that prices actually went down by like 0.02 percent right they were flat prices did not go up There was no inflation in July. The amount you paid in July was no more than it was in June. So inflation was zero in July. The headline number is prices in July were still higher than they were in July 2021. Right. In July 2021, Putin hadn't invaded Ukraine. You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that has happened since then that caused prices to go up. And now, if the July thing continues, then prices have stopped going up. And if prices stop going up, then in my mind, that means we don't have inflation. I also think people underestimate the extent to which when political narratives get traction, they determine how people think about this. I have a tendency to argue with conservatives on Twitter because I'm a masochist. And 
there was a guy that I was arguing with in DMs and we were, we had you know a very civil back and forth but he was complaining about gas prices and was 100% convinced that gas prices are high because of Joe Biden's pipeline cancellations and I just thought this was absurd but he was he was you know totally and then, and then I heard this yeah. from you know some of my relatives too and it sort of doesn't matter what's happening in the reality based economy if people believe otherwise, or they have a different understanding of how all of this is working and it's driving their spending behavior. Right. But that also assumes that there is like a reality-based understanding that is true. And I think that is over-optimistic. And I've written about this, that if you look at the economic data as a whole that it is coming out between the GDP data, the productivity data, the inflation data, the jobs data... It doesn't make any sense. There's no coherent narrative that actually explains the whole thing. So you can absolutely attach any bit of that data to any particular causal thing that you want and make some kind of a colorable case that there's a connection there. Because there's really genuinely no consensus. And or, I mean, a lot of people like myself just don't have even a theory of the case, really. It's just, there's, it's very confusing right now to understand what's going on. We just had this productivity data that came out that shows massively negative productivity growth. Americans have become much less productive in their work, way more than in living memory. And does anyone have an explanation for that? Not really. Well, it's also so multifactorial that it's hard to sort out, you know, where we might be, some variables might be outlier situations right now and then develop a comprehensive theory of the case based on that. In terms of the CPI data, as I say, we don't really have a common understanding of what the word inflation means, but there is a case to be made that you could say inflation went down in July. It was 9.1% in June, it was 8.5% in July, that 8.5 is lower than 9.1, therefore it went down. And the problem here, I think one of the big underlying problems is that inflation as a concept is a first derivative. It's a rate of change of something. It's how much prices have changed. And normal humans just don't understand first derivatives. Well, especially when you call it first derivatives, I think. <laughs> kind of, okay, I'm paying more for gas. Well, that's interesting. Because your point, Elizabeth, earlier about, I think you're right about sort of the perception of inflation affects inflation right? It becomes this weird Heisenberg blitz where people think they're paying more, even if maybe they're not in some cases, well, some days, right? Especially in gas prices. Right? Gas exactly. Prices gas prices been, went down like a lot have, recently. Have fallen so. every day for over 50 days now. Yeah. <laughs> they might not be low on some kind of an absolute level, but they have been falling steadily. And the reason why the CPI number came in at zero and no one thinks that we have like completely conquered inflation at this point is because it was a huge part of that was disinflation and gas prices. The gas prices have come down and brought the overall number down. Take out gas and you still have substantially positive inflation. And that's like much more entrenched in things like rents and house prices and housing costs. And that's going to be harder to get rid of. Well, that's actually something that I'm curious what you guys think, because there's a headline figure, of course, and then there's core inflation, which economists and the Fed tend to look at, which strips out volatile things like oil, like commodities or certain commodities. And then there's something that people are talking now about, like super core inflation, where they strip out like airlines, because that's also gas dependent, and a few other things that 
they think that gets to an even better number, which I think economists have always looked at, but it's not a number that people talk about openly. And again, like none of the news reports really sort of narrowed in on this, but that's something that I think people have been looking at. And I'm just curious what you guys well, think. Well, people about. certainly, certainly like the Federal Reserve has been looking at, right? Yeah, they've always yeah, been Alan looking Alan Greenspan at that, right? was famous for just consuming reams and reams of economic data and really trying to understand what's going on. No one number can sum up everything, but there is this feeling in monetary policy circles that monetary policy can't do a huge amount when it comes to commodity prices, Right oil exactly. being like what can, how, yeah you have no lever for that oil prices then feed into gas prices they feed into food prices they feed into airline fares they feed into a bunch of different things and so if you want to see like what is the inflationary vibe to use the term in the economy there is a case of stripping that out just in terms of working out where should we be setting interest rates and that kind of thing but that's a monetary policy geek thing that's not a how much are people paying thing because frankly it's precisely those volatile prices it's the food and energy prices that are stripped out of headline to get core that people care about the most normies think this is political spin they're like oh you just made that up super core everything's more expensive for me yeah they don't care more right (laughs) Right, but they, the Fed's job is not a political job. Yes, right? The Fed's job is not to try and persuade people that inflation is low. The Fed's job is to keep prices in check broadly and to control the things that they can control and to maybe care a little bit less about the stuff they can't control. Yeah, I think it's more when Democratic leadership gets up and says, actually, super core is low. And people will go, well, you know, if, especially if you're on the other side of the political fence, you think oh, what's this new explanation that they have for why everything feels so expensive to me, but it's actually not. Right. They're saying I'm not paying more, but I am paying more. So what the hell is this? It is spent. Yeah. Right. And the more, again, like when we deal with first derivatives, things are hard. It's more compared to when, right? Is it more compared to last month? Is it more compared to last year? Is it more compared to pre-pandemic? What is your baseline? Also, there's a thing that I'm also sort of picking up from right-wing Twitter and my my family, that uh, baseline expectations around what inflation is and how it's supposed to occur have kind of shifted. And people think that the goal is zero inflation ever, which is not how Which is not how it works, right. Well, I mean, mean, it's close enough. It's 2%, which is low enough that no one really notices it. Remember, before the pandemic, for years, we could barely get to that number, right? That's Right, so there there was a long, you know, I remember many, many, many Fed press conferences where there were a million different versions of the question asking Jay Powell or whoever the Fed chair was at the time, you know, how are you going to be able to reach your inflation target? Well, you're well away from your inflation target. What are you doing to hit your inflation target? And the problem was that inflation was too low. And in order to hit the target, he needed to increase inflation. That's all a distant memory at this point. But, you know, it was really only the kind of journalists who go to Federal Reserve press conferences who were walking around with this conception that inflation was too low. Everyone else, like, they didn't worry about inflation. Prices were steady. They were like, okay, that seems fine to me. Well, so here's the bigger picture, though, right? Like, why are, why do we care about this? Why are we even talk, Why do journalists even look at these figures? And why are we publishing these figures with the context of, like, oh, people are paying more, or they feel like they're not paying more, et cetera? You know, the Fed is trying to set interest rates. That does affect so much of how... Just money supply is going to go out there, affects housing prices, affects just how businesses operate, ultimately. Well, I mean, ultimately what it affects is there is this feeling, which is perfectly natural and human, 
that what I earn is due to me. And then what I have to pay is due to the prices that are set by someone else. And so if I keep my consumption basket constant and the amount of money in nominal dollars that I need to spend on that consumption basket is going up, then that's bad for me because it's costing me money. So inflation just broadly is a bad thing because it means I need to pay more for stuff. Right, exactly. But that's the thing is that Jay Powell isn't really thinking about that, right? He's thinking about, okay, do we do a 75 basis point increase or a 50? Like the market thought, oh, 75 is baked into the market. The CPI numbers came out. It was like, oh, this moderated much more than people thought. And so maybe it's only going to be 50. So then the market went up, right? And so that, again, the market is not the economy, but it had so much effect on how, where the money flows are going at, based on this weird number that came out that was just a one-month snapshot. That, the jobs data also was utterly bizarre. The last jobs data is like half a million. I, I didn't Absolute understand that either. Absolute blowout jobs report. Yeah. yeah, and so the Biden administration hailed it as a victory of sorts. Maybe Which it is. Which it was. But, I, mean, yeah. like, I mean, a victory of sorts in that, like, honestly, they would have probably preferred it to be a bit lower. But yeah, right. I mean, exactly. more people getting jobs ultimately has to be a good thing, right? You saw that, but then the stock market went down. Right? So people are like, huh? And so it feels like a game of whack-a-mole and everyday people are like, huh, I don't get it. Like I, and then I look at this stuff and I'm not saying I'm an economist or an expert, but I say, I don't get it either. So then the journalist, the financial journalist is like, okay, how do we write about this? Right. What do we say here? And that's always an ongoing debate because the financial and, journalists and say, this was a good number, a bad number. This right, is a good exactly. news, bad oh, I, news I, thing. I love right. that, right? And, and right. One, of, one of my pet peeves is the way in which financial journalism is always written in such a way, especially if they're talking about markets at all, that if markets go up, that's good. If markets go down, that's bad. It's like markets become this kind of normative thing, which they're not at all. And the problem, one of the big problems here is that, yeah, you the people who are writing these articles are the business and finance journalists who most of the time are writing for what we used to call the business section, which is the section that normal people would throw away because it didn't have any relevance to them. <laughs> and so they are writing for people who you know, work on Wall Street, who care about their stock portfolio, who live in a very sort of financialized world. And who understand things like what is the federal funds rate and what is the Federal Reserve and all of this kind of stuff, right? While at the same time, for a few times a year, whether it's like a big CPI print or a GDP print or jobs print or something, um, that news breaks through to the general public. And the general public doesn't and in fact, probably can't and shouldn't be expected to read those stories in the same way that the reader of a business section does. And so you kind of need two different versions of the same story. Or you need a story to have that kind of valence, right, where you could do think two things at once. Yeah. yeah, I think there's also, this goes back to the political narrative aspect of this. I think the general public is often educated about economic concepts via politics. And when you think about how many times Trump got up and said, look, the economy's doing well because look at where the Dow is. That became a defining variable for people. And so they overestimate the extent to which equity markets are reflective of the overall economy. Yeah, I think, I think honestly, though, that's like a 
politics Twitter slash cable news thing. I think that just as the normal sensible people don't generally read business and finance coverage, normal sensible people don't generally read a huge amount of politics coverage either. No, you know, but they I, get they get the headline version of it, especially when you have somebody like Trump who says the same thing over and over again because he can only hold three thoughts in his head at one time. Maybe, but I do think it's possible to overstate the degree to which the confusion about CPI is a political thing where the Democrats all want it to be zero and the Republicans all want it to be eight and a half percent and they're both using it as a political bludgeon to hit the other one other side with. That is true, but I think mostly it's the people who care a lot about politics who who see it that way. And that's not most Americans. I tend to agree with Elizabeth there. I think what's happening at least in the past year, or really at least in terms of business coverage, at least in terms of econ coverage. I can tell you that, like, I know this firsthand, like at the Times, our econ coverage is some of the most read stuff at the paper now, right, on our site. So CPI numbers come out and like, that's the number one story, not just because we put it at the top of the homepage, but people are actively reading it and responding and commenting and sending either angry notes to our reporters about why are you calling it this? And these are everyday people. Well, people who leave comments on New York Times are not everyday people. (laughs) Come on. Everyday people for us. Let's put it that way, right? So let me segue here into the other thing that normal Americans don't think about, but financial journalists think about a lot, which is checking accounts and banks. And there's this meme that I don't think has been actually held up by reliable data, but everyone kind of believes it anyway, which is that you're more likely to get divorced than you are to change your bank. And there is a thesis I have, which I want to put to you too, which is that the number of successful banks that have launched in the digital era, basically since the internet was invented, is zero. And I'm fascinated why a lot of people do their banking online now and a lot of companies a lot of fintechs have launched and there are a million online banks now where you can do all of your banking through an app and the news hook here is a business insider piece about marcus which is goldman sachs their attempt to try and launch a consumer facing digital bank which seems lost $1.2 billion or something last year. It's not doing that great. But first of all, Elizabeth, I want to ask you, do you agree with my thesis that we, it's kind of weird in this world of like disruption and fintech and all of the rest of it, that we haven't actually seen a successful digital banking entrance, or do you think we have? I think yes and yes and no. I, I agree with you that it's strange given the potential of the sector that nobody's been able to fund and sustain something that actually works. But on the other hand, there's so many barriers to entry for that kind of business, just regulatory. We have not an oligopoly, but we do have enough of a entrenched system where it would be very difficult for a new player to come in. So I think, you know, it's weird that in terms of financial technology, it's done a pretty good job of removing the barriers to entry, right? You don't actually even need to be a bank to be a bank anymore. Most of these neobanks, whether Chime or Aspiration or N26 or M1, or I can't, there's a million of them. The overwhelming majority of them are not banks. They just, they're like these kind of 
skins sit on top of Bancor or some like other bank that you'd never really see. And they and behind the scenes, it's just some old bank. But the Neo Bank brand is not a bank at all. The only the main exception to this, there are two exceptions to this that I can think of. The main one is Varro, which finally got its big national banking license and is very proud of that, but that didn't stop it losing money in hand over fist. And the other one is SoFi, which has like a state banking license, I think. I wonder if to some extent it's just that normies feel uncomfortable with digital only banks. It's, you know, they want to be able to walk into a branch and talk to somebody. I think there's like two things, right? Which is, I agree with that. But I also think like a digital bank would appeal to younger people in general, which seeing a lot of the marketing, that's how it's designed. But a lot of younger people, especially these days, don't have money. <laughs> so <laughs> it just... Even if they sign up for these accounts, I don't think that there's it's creating enough of a deposit that the bank can actually sustain, right? That becomes a bank, a lender. Well, bank I mean, so this is part of the business. They, they all absolutely aim at younger people, and they all claim to be doing God's work by bringing the unbanked and the underbanked into the financial system and this kind of stuff, precisely because they're not actually banks, most of them, precisely because they're basically, your deposits are actually held at Bancor or somewhere or Silicon Valley Bank or some other place that isn't the brand, the brand, Aspiration or whoever, doesn't get any net interest income, doesn't do any lending out anyway. So in, in a weird way, having a large deposit base in and of itself doesn't help them. They don't make any money off deposits. They make money off transactions. They make money off interchange fees. When you use your debit card to pay for a cup of coffee, they make that 2% or whatever it is. Well, the interesting thing about the Insider article is that the author had a thesis that was, I think, repeated to him several times by some of the sources that Marcus, in particular, was failing in part because there was a kind of deep pockets problem where it's difficult to actually create a startup inside of a large company because people will throw good money after bad or decisions get made by committee too much and so on. But if that was true, it would seem to cut against what you're saying, which is that it's very strange that there's been no independent, successful neobank. Yeah, I don't buy the deep pockets thesis, really, in this case, because my like the corollary of my thesis that we haven't had a single successful digital bank launch in the digital era is the successful digital banks are, you know, Chase Manhattan, and Wells Fargo and like the big banks with really deep pockets who have enough money to be able to like spin up an app and send it out and everyone just downloads their Chase app and they use it and they can do whatever they could do with the neobank just as easily with their Chase app so they don't need to change and that really this stuff this kind of technology is not easy it's quite expensive engineers as we all know are incredibly expensive banks as we all know well we should all, always remind ourselves that the financial sector employs more software engineers than the technology sector. So the the banks have all of these engineers who can do all of these things. They have the budget to be able to do it. And if you're trying to compete against those trillion-dollar banks with 10 million bucks of VC startup cash, like, God help you. So what about, okay, proposition, right? Couldn't a bank, like, ultimately... You want to attract more customers if you want to entice people to move their deposits out of say chase into neobank x whatever it might be 
isn't it's not just about the technology and the ease of use and all that kind of stuff. If you offer me a better interest rate, I'll move my money. There's a good chance of that, right? And that's actually the one area that Marcus seems to have been reasonably successful. Right. It has a savings account. They can throw a large number on the savings account. They don't need to park their money with some other bank because they are a bank. They have been since 2008. And they have, according to this article, $100 billion in deposits, which is not a small number. But even with $100 billion in deposits, they're still losing money and it doesn't seem to be helping them very much. If you pay a lot of money on your deposits on savings accounts, then that's money you're losing, that you're paying out in interest. It doesn't help you on a bottom line basis. Isn't sort of the proposition around this kind of digital banking is that the cost would be lower, right? You don't have tellers, you don't have as many humans sort of having to interact on a one-to-one basis with all the different clients to serve them. That's definitely the proposition. And that's why you saw a bunch of these banks get incredibly high valuations during like the last VC bubble, right? was precisely because they were saying like, our unit costs are so much lower than our competitors. The checking account you have at Chase costs Chase $300, $400 a year to service. We can service an account for $3 a year. So like we are just much more efficient. And so the VCs were like, wow, you are so much more efficient. You are a disruptive force in the industry. And they threw a lot of money in, but they forgot the bit where they had to show profits. So here's the thing, isn't in the case of Marcus, right, based on what I read in that Business Insider article, I mean, it seems to be more failure of execution than of design, right? Going back to the whole startup conundrum, is it like, is it a bad business model or were you just a bad manager? It does seem to be amazing. That bank has been around for, what, five years now? I can't remember. It's been a while and they still haven't been able to launch their checking account. You'd think the checking account would be a pretty basic part of being a bank, but apparently it's not. The reason why I bring this up is because I was at a crypto party several months ago. <laughs> Believe it or not. You yes, of course I was. I, look, I was by far the oldest person in the room. I was talking to someone for 10 minutes. I'm like, oh, so she was working at some startup. I was like, where, how long did you work there? Oh, I just started like a year ago. I was like, oh, so when did you graduate college? I haven't started college yet. And I'm like, what? <laughs> So it's like that. Like, that's what this world is like. The reason I bring it up is someone was talking to me about, and I forget the term of art or how they, what you call it. The best is like a crypto bank, right? Which is you put your money into basically a crypto managed fund that then lends out the money, right? You, however, as a depositor, he got something like 15% interest, something insane. Yeah, no, and this is exactly why I think all of these neobanks are doomed, because everyone who did that lost their money, right? All of these places like Celsius that offered those deals, oh, yeah. like went massively bust and people lost all their money. And they're like, I, yeah, and that was real money that people couldn't afford to lose, right? That wasn't people who were speculating on crypto saying, I'm going to buy a bunch of some shitcoin in the hope that it goes up. This was people like putting their, savings into something and saying like i'm giving you my savings in u.s dollars and you are paying me interest in u.s dollars and this is real money that i'm putting right. in when that disappeared and people were like i thought it was fdic insured and they're like and eh, no it wasn't that gave the entire sector a bad name and so now even the places that genuinely are fdic insured are gonna find it hard to get the trust of the general public because the general public has now seen people get really burned. I totally agree. But guess what? It's still going to happen. There's going to be more of these things popping up. But the Celsius example is interesting because they had this weird algorithm devised 
kind of system where like they would lend out at a higher, whatever the leverage was, much higher than they had deposits for, right? Based on what they knew people would sort of redeem. And it was just like very fuzzy. What this guy was telling me at the party is like, no, it's much more straightforward. It's the whole idea is that like, you know, there's no one really managing it. So like, there's no one to pay, you know, there's no service fee really. Like it's just, it's all the crypto. So we just get most of that dollar back, right? In terms of the lending, how banks make their margin, ultimately we become the bank. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And that to me was sort of the, why aren't these neobanks doing essentially that, right? Where you really shrink the cost. Well, because they're not in crypto because they're sensible. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But that's what I'm saying is that like, there's just going to be more iterations of this until someone wins. Here's the bigger picture, Ed, which is, you make a very good point, which is that all of these crypto banks, which, by the way, do not touch any of them because they're a very bad idea from a consumer perspective. But like all of these crypto banks, they really started with the lending product, right? And they were like, we're going to lend out money at incredibly high interest rates. And they were always incredibly vague about who was borrowing the money and whether those people were credit worthy and all of this kind of stuff. But they were going, we're going to lend out money at incredibly high interest rates. And then you get to keep all of those, that high interest. If you look at the broad mass of actual neobanks, the N26s and Chimes and Desperations and Varos and all of those, basically none of them do much in the way of lending. There's a few of them will lend you money for like, one day or two days against your paycheck you're like i know you have a job your paycheck is coming in i know you're i trust your employer so i'll let you access your money like a day or two before your paycheck comes in but actual like real lending as in can you lend me five thousand dollars to pay off my credit card bill something like that like none of them do that and that's the bread and butter of banking, right? You, the deposits in the bank are your liabilities. Your assets are your loans. If you don't make any loans, you don't have any assets. And somehow it's been really hard, even after really quite a lot of years. And I remember talking to all of these banks years ago saying, well, when are you going to start lending? And they're like, soon. It's on the roadmap. And they still haven't done it. That turns out to be hard. They're very conservative. Strangely, it's strange to say that, right? Given after the banking crisis that happened, like they're still pretty conservative. But also they just don't have the balance sheet. Talking of balance sheet, Ed, you're the media deals person somewhere deep in your soul. (laughs) I know you don't actually write about media deals anymore, but you know you want to. So now you're on Slate Money and you get to cosplay as a media deals reporter. So what is the headline (laughs) when it comes to media deals? Well, of course... There's this media business called Axios. You may or may not. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, I've heard of you, them. Yeah. <laughs> Felix. Yeah. Right. Was this a nice boon for you? This First of all, this is what Cox Enterprises. It's the family owned investment firm that also owns a cable company based down in Atlanta. They also own newspapers, been around it for a while. They're privately held and they paid $525 million or equivalent valuation that is for this little known or actually now very well-known startup called Axios. People know about it because A, I mention it at the top of every episode of Slate Money. So that's got to be worth something. And B, because all of the newspapers reported this deal. (laughs) Every single one, exactly. (laughs) Including ours, right? Um, I thought this was a wonderful deal in the sense that I read Axios. I think it's a great news source. And the fact that it's not lost too much money. In fact, I think it's made money most for most of the years it's been in operation and that it basically got a really nice exit. It was a success story and there are so very few of them in digital media. So 
That, to me, was the standout element of this. It's definitely gratifying to see this young startup being valued at more than, not just more than, say, BuzzFeed or something, you know, struggling like that, but more than, like, Gannett. Well, more than the Washington Post. I think it's twice as much what Bezos paid for the Washington Post. I would hazard to say that if Bezos put the Washington Post up for sale tomorrow, he could probably get more than 500 Oh, he definitely money. would. But yeah. you have to understand, when he bought the Washington Post, it was a money-losing, will this newspaper survive situation. And Axios has been either money-making or not too much money-losing in yeah. sort of the five-plus years it's been around. So that already was an interesting accomplishment. And I think the move towards local is interesting. I'm, I'm still not entirely sold on it, but I do think it's an interesting way to expand. What are you not sold on? when it comes to our version of local journalism? I like the idea that there's different local needs, and so therefore you need to serve that in a specific, you can't top down that, you can't have like a national sort of mandate around how you do that. So every local will be slightly different, but it's hard to scale them. You can't sort of put one kind of format on how every local operation is going to operate. You might have one kind of financial format, but even then it's not, I don't know that that will necessarily apply. So I'm still skeptical. It can happen, but who knows? That was definitely the arm of the business that Cox seemed to be most excited about in their own press release and what they were saying. Well, yeah, because they also know how like local like advertising works. They also know that political advertising is huge for local media in general. It's all goes to TV these days and still to Facebook, but there's still a chance for local news outlets to, to grab some of those dollars. So yes, there's potential upside. I think it'll be incredibly hard. I think if anyone can do it, I think there's a chance here with Axios and Cox, but I think it's still a tough nut to crack. But this wasn't even the biggest deal of the week. My God. So I'm still st stunned by this. And it sort of makes me think that like, we've all been in the wrong business. But anyway, <laughs> you're talking about Reorg, right? Right. You have to tell the listeners what Reorg is exactly. I'm sure a lot of them know, but... I'm quite sure they don't. I mean, Elizabeth, had you ever heard of Reorg before this week? I had not. And I feel like I was sort of in the financial trade business at least 10 years ago. <laughs> well, so. I mean, the first thing you need to know about Reorg is it didn't exist 10 years ago. It's a very young company. And Reorg sold for, what was it, 1.1 billion, something like that? 1.3. Yeah. 1.3 billion? One point, so this is yeah. for all you listeners. Basically a media company, right? It produces news, produces news and data. $1.3 billion. I mean, we're applauding the Axios deal, which is a half a billion plus, right? But this is like this little known, like relatively small news startup or news and data startup, rather, over a billion dollars. I was stunned. I, was uh, I think that the number is insane, but I think one of the one of the things that is is relevant here is that, you know, trade businesses don't operate the same way that consumer-facing media does. On the whole, they tend to be more stable because industry news is always going to be valued by people in the industry. And if you can get your company to pay thousands of dollars for a trade subscription, that's going to be more stable than something that's consumer facing, which especially in an inflationary environment will drive whether consumers are going to spend money, but won't necessarily drive whether companies are going to spend on trade publications. The question is, how do you get to a $1.3 billion valuation by selling subscriptions to what is basically a news service giving information about distressed debt and debt restructuring deals, you know? My gut is that valuation was driven by something to do with the data side of their business, which could be used for all sorts of things, but I don't, I will confess, I don't understand, don't understand their economics. Either. So, Elizabeth, you're probably right. I, 
it would seem to me sort of it's more of a Bloomberg terminal type of value, right? Yeah. That there's data here. And as financial journalists, we all know this. It's like when there's some kind of data that's hard to get, you're like, oh, man, I really need this data. And if someone starts to hoard that and like collect it and organize it in a way that's useful, which is what Bloomberg really is, that terminal or any kind of financial data service that's designed around, people pay a lot of money for that. But yes and no, Ed, like Bloomberg is the rare and almost unique case of that actually working. Like Mike Bloomberg, give him real credit for making that incredibly profitable and successful. I can rattle off a long list of data providers that are much less lucrative than that. I used to work for one called Bridge News. You probably don't remember it. There was Tellerate. There was Knight Ritter. Even Dow Jones Newswires, which is part of News Corp, is journalistically speaking, and even financially speaking, kind of an afterthought to the Wall Street Journal. That is true. And I think the other thing about the big asterisk on Bloomberg, and I use that as an example of what this, the valuation, but the real value of Bloomberg isn't really so much a data anymore and hasn't been for years as much as it is the messaging system that all the bond traders and all the currency traders use to actually conduct trades. Like they'll use a little Bloomberg messaging system to actually sell stuff. Right. Bloomberg Messenger is amazing because every single person you you want to communicate with in finance is on Bloomberg Messenger. Name the biggest, most famous people in finance. They're all there on Bloomberg Messenger. You don't need to go through any kind of gatekeepers to reach them. Once I was in the elevator at Goldman and I it was some someone standing next to me in the elevator. She had this ream of papers just in her hand like this. And I'm like, what is that? And I kind of peeked over. And they're all printouts of Bloomberg messages. Because <laughs> why, why do I want to say she works in compliance? So anyway, I think the larger point though here in terms of reorg and the valuation and everything, I mean, I see this a lot in the comments of the New York Times. I mean, it's clear that media organizations, and I don't know if you see this at Axios necessarily, but media organizations are really about these days congregating certain parts of the electorate, right? Certain types of people. I remember years ago, like I, I used to be, regular economist reader. This is before the internet really became like a place for all kinds of economist type content. And seeing someone on the subway reading the economist, I'm like, who's that person? I want to know who that person is. I want to like meet them. And I think these days, media entities have become that much more of a guidepost for certain types of people to congregate. And the media company that's going to really figure that out could make a lot of money. You know, I don't know how you create that platform, how you exploit that platform. But the one thing that we can learn from these two deals is that no matter how good you do at that, like the good old fashioned, you know, recurring subscription revenue is how you really get the valuations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I mean, we're learning about the times and it's actually so far been working fairly well. So Ed, I need to, I need to ask you one times question. Oh, which okay. Has been, Here we go. You don't need to answer it, but I'm going to ask it. Why is the athletic being thrown in for free? with the rest of the New York Times when much cheaper parts of the Times to buy or operate, like cooking and games, are uh, extra or wire cutter? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I don't I, I don't have the answer in terms of I'm not in that meeting, <laughs> right? <laughs> I can tell you this. I mean, I can tell you like what the company has said publicly, right? Which is it's really trying to promote the bundle. What's the bundle in our case? It's like what they call all access. You buy the Times and games and wire cutter and the athletic 
cooking all in one bundle and you get one subscription price that like covers the whole gamut and you get everything. So I think I would then imagine that I don't know this firsthand that throwing in the athletic right now, which we paid a pretty penny for uh, very similar to the (laughs) price that Cox paid for. (laughs) <laughs> for Axios is a way to entice readers, subscribers from one subset into the larger subset, right? You're kind of wet their appetite. So at least that's what I guess. I don't know this firsthand. But. There was a story yesterday that an activist investor has accumulated 7% <laughs> of time stock. <laughs> Value act. They're, they're like, more bundle, more better. Can you drive into the bundle and leverage the platform with a deeper moat? The mixed metaphors were amazing. I think they're right that the bundles are undermarketed. I think a lot of people don't know that you could get all these things packaged together. But I also just can't imagine accumulating 7% of the stock and going to the mat just to say that. <laughs> That's, <laughs> I don't know how much of a mat they're going to. I think their vision is broadly aligned with what the New York Times has been doing anyway. They reckon that if the New York Times succeeds at what it's doing, then the stock will go up. I don't think yeah that they're an activist investor, but I don't think that this is a particularly adversarial. They're uh, not Carl Icahn. They're not Elliott Management. You know, I will also say this. I mean, I think it's a fair point, I think, just from a putting my media reporter hat on, like, yeah, looking at the Times business, it's like, I think, Elizabeth, you're right. A lot of people don't know that this bundle exists, right? I think the marketing efforts are still evolving. And so, yeah, maybe they could amp it up. It could be much more clear and much more highlighted. The other thing to note, though, for any activist, and I'm sure they've done their homework, the New York Times is, in sort of classic media fashion, a, a controlled company, which is to say that the Oxalt-Sperger family, one of my ultimate bosses here, they control a set of shares called the Class B shares that always get to elect 70% of the board. So you can buy up every available public share there is and still not control the company. And the conceit around this kind of dual structure, News Corp has the same thing, is to maintain editorial independence, right? That you don't, you know, beholden to activists or to investors seeking immediate financial returns. So that is the caveat to any kind of activist play. At the same time, like, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting argument that, that these people are making, but, you know. Anyone who owns Times stock, I don't think, or who wonders about the future of the Times, it's not, they're not going to tip over the boat, certainly. I think this was really just a value play. The the New York Times stock has come off its highs, and they're like, it's looking cheap, we'll come out, and maybe if we put out a press release, that will light some kind of a fire under them, but, you know, whatever. So, let's have a numbers round. I'll kick off, why not, with 23.8. 4 billion, which is the number of dollars that SoftBank contrived to lose in a single quarter in the second quarter. (laughs) That's amazing. How do you manage to lose $23 billion in a single quarter? What's even more amazing is that Masson, when he was announcing these earnings, was actually contrite about it. Right. Normally he's like, you guys are all idiots and you're selling off these stocks and I have a vision and have faith in my vision and the unicorn will jump through the chasm and grow wings or whatever it is. This time he's like, uh, yeah, I kind of fucked up and this is bad. As an investor, does that make you feel better or worse? You're an LP. If you're an investor in, in SoftBank, which is a publicly listed company, you yeah. can buy shares in it. Very yeah, Anyone can true. buy shares in it. Yeah, I think it makes you feel worse because now it doesn't seem to have a thesis at all anymore. I agree with that. But also, like, you know, what was it a week or so later, a few weeks later, SoftBank announced we're going to sell part of their stake in Alibaba, which would then net them something like 30 billion plus. 
<laughs> right? It's sort of like, it felt so, something about it just sort of felt cartoonish in terms of, yeah, we lost 24 billion, but don't worry, we're going to gain 30 billion in the sale that we're, I just decided we're going to do. So you don't buy into SoftBank because they're conservative, that's for sure. You know, you, you <laughs> buy into Masasan, like, that's your whole thing. That's the thesis, right? And the fact that he said he fucked up is not great, but it's also like, okay, like I bought into volatility, ultimately. Well, you certainly got that. Ed, what's your number? My number is 74 euros, which is when I was traveling in Italy two weeks ago, had rented a car, which was not cheap, of course, to begin with, and had to drive it around. This family vacation was very nice, don't get me wrong thinking, you know, it's a small car too, right? It's European, small. It was a Renault something or other. I forget exactly what. Drove around, had to fill it up, went to the gas station. And I don't exactly remember how many liters I put in there. But when I was done, it was 74 euro. And I was thinking, wait a minute, I rented this for about $600. So (laughs) fill it up. I was like, well, I'm actually now paying $700 to rent this car. And of course, gas prices were up. Gas prices are generally higher in the EU, but I was just floored by what it cost. But just be thankful for the strong dollar, Ed, because that's... Well, that's, there you go. I was, I was calculating dollars, like man. it was something like 0.9 to 1, you know, whatever it was at the time. So I was like, okay, maybe I made a buck or two on that. I will say that if you want to convert euros per liter into dollars per gallon, like asking Siri to do that for you is a very good way. Siri will oh, do that actually, for that's you. good. I didn't know that. That's a good tip. But yeah, when I go to Europe, I'm like, wow, that looks expensive. It, the normal price if you convert it back into dollars per gallon is in the sort of seven dollar range gasoline is just a lot more expensive in europe yeah energy in general is just much more expensive you know and and especially now elizabeth how about you what's your number my number is 27 dollars and 95 cents which one of our listeners has repeatedly pointed out is not a number but it's not your number is 27.95 <laughs> which is the number of dollars yes. you see i'm telling you we have to stick to this conceit Yes. So uh, that is what I paid last night for a lobster roll at Clemente's in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn. And so this is a continuation of our plus segment last week on uh, lobster roll prices. Felix previously purchased a lobster roll in Midtown at Luke's Lobster for $44. But that was included tax and tip. Okay. Well, you also, didn't you say your benchmark was a, a main place? The clam shack in Maine is 29. And so you're 29 as well, right? I think the benchmark yeah. lobster roll is $29 these days. Yeah. 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 I was going to say that was actually not a bad price Elizabeth, for lobster yeah, roll. And it's yeah. a, it was an excellent lobster roll. It had a, it was called an angry lobster roll and it had a chipotle roomlet. <laughs> wow. So this is in Sheepshead Bay. Yeah. All right. That's another good tip. I'll have to go check this place out. I think Nick's lobster was in the news this week because it was where the Democratic Party, the Grand Poobahs all got together to work out who was going to be the nominees for judges in Brooklyn. And it turned into a huge fight. And yep. some like sexual generic was like, I'm a Sicilian, I'm going to rip your head off. And, you know, good old fashioned <laughs> New York politics. But apparently there, the, the lobster rolls are only like 22 bucks. So, you know, there are still oh. places where you can get a sub $30 lobster roll. They're just becoming... Rare. I did get some response from my Axios article on lobster rolls, because this is obviously the only thing we care about in August, from a guy running a lobster roll place in Maine. And he basically confirmed everything I was saying, that what you're paying for lobster roll is labor. Like the cost of cracking open lobsters and extracting all of that lobster meat is just very expensive. And he gets a bunch of J1 temporary immigrants to do it all for, he says they earn like 
13 dollars an hour but then it goes up to like 19 with overtime and they're working like 70 or 80 hours a week and like whatever however much they can work he's like just keep on working because the demand for lobster rolls is huge and that's where all the money is going that's where all the money's going but if getting paid like 19 dollars an hour or so with overtime i mean does it take an hour to crack a lobster to create a sandwich <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm not. I'm just doing some quick math in my head. So. Uh, yeah. How much time in terms of labor does it take to extract five ounces of lobster meat? I mean, it's not easy, that's for sure. Or maybe but. if I'm putting my economist hat on here, it's not so much that the labor is expensive and more that the labor is just not available. And so you need to raise the price in order to reduce the demand to the point at which you can meet the demand. Which then describes so much of the labor market right now, in terms of hiring, in terms of where prices yeah. are going ultimately. I mean, I know we, again, CPI, labor, all that kind of the economy, people keep talking about why are prices still high, why it's hard to hire people. One thing I'd point out is that we lost a million people to COVID in the States, right? So... It's not an insignificant number. A lot of people are also debilitated or can't work yeah, as well. Long COVID is big. And then simultaneously, we had two years yeah. of basically zero immigration. Exactly. So there's just fewer people in this country to begin with. I think that's where we're going to wrap this up. We do have a Slate Plus segment on Rivian and Tesla. But for the rest of us, that's it for Slate Money this week. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much. Edmund Lee for coming on. It's been fabulous having you on Anytime. the show. Thanks to Jessamyn Molly at Seaplane Armada for producing. And we'll be back next week with even more Slate Money. Okay, so Rivian lost how many billions of dollars in one quarter? I, it was like more than one anyway which seems bad if you're a company trying to make a profit. Tesla, 1.7 billion, yeah. How much? 1.7 billion. 1.7 billion dollars they lost tripled, in single the quarter. The losses tripled to 1.7 billion. Tesla didn't lose that much money, but they their CEO, one Elon Musk, did sell 6.9 billion dollars of Tesla stock because he reckons he might lose this court case and have to buy Twitter. I'm assuming that's why he sold it, right? Well, it, according to his Twitter, it was like, probably not, but just in case, to paraphrase. <laughs> He's like, yeah, if I don't have to buy Twitter, um, I'll buy it back. But like, you do the math, and it's still not remotely enough. He needs to come up with $33 billion. Like, you're not going to do that by not selling any more Tesla stock. I, I like the conspiracy theory that uh, he's he just wanted an excuse to sell it off. So, like, he, he made the overshoot to buy Twitter knowing that he'd have to sell off a bunch of Tesla stock. I, I think it's where he's being then, opportunistic now that he sees the writing on the wall with Twitter. And So what's the writing on the wall? That he's going to have to buy Twitter? Or that he's going to have so. to pay I a mean, lot of billions to get out of buying Twitter? Yes. He said something like, in the unlikely event that they forced me to close the sale. But I don't think that he's being honest there. I think he's smart enough to sort of understand the likelihood that he will have to pay something. He's not getting out of this entirely. So that's interesting. You think that, I, I don't think he's got a, a good case, period, but you think the outcome is not that he will be forced to buy Twitter outright, but that he'll have to pay he'll out have to something. to pay something, right? Like, yeah, even if beyond it's just the, a, the kill fee, beyond the... Yeah. The way it works legally, I've been talking to a few lawyers about this, is the the court will 
hand down a judgment saying that he needs to buy Twitter. Like, that's what he agreed to do. That's what he's legally obliged to do. And then what the judgment does is it creates the facts on the ground where both sides, Elon and Twitter, agree that he has to buy Twitter. And then, given the fact that he has to buy Twitter, he can then negotiate on, well, how much do I need to pay you in order to not have to buy Twitter? And then he can say, well, I just sold the 6.9 billion of Tesla stock, so how about 7 billion? And they'll be like, that's not enough make it 20 and then you know they'll but at least there's common ground on which to negotiate right whereas right now he's saying like i don't need to pay anything you know you're fraudulent blah 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 and they're saying you need to pay everything and so it's much harder to do that negotiation and i think ultimately that's why the judge will grant specific performance not because she really wants musk to buy Twitter or even necessarily thinks that he would, but just so that the two sides can come to an agreement. I think that makes sense. I guess the other X factor though is like, what if he just says no, like judge grants specific performance and he says, no, not doing it. And there's no, (laughs) not just for performance sake, not just for Twitter sake, but like in private, he says no and tells Twitter no, and there's no negotiation. I'm just not doing it. And then all of a sudden, like, Delaware Chancellor Court is like, hold on, like we told you you have to do it. He's like, yeah, no, I disagree with you. <laughs> like, is there an appeal? I don't get it. Like, how I, am does an, that... I am a nation state unto myself. I have And this immunity. seems like a totally plausible scenario with him. I did a flow chart of all of the possible outcomes a few months yes, ago. Yes, lovely flow chart. I saw that. And that was the point in the flow chart where it just was like three question marks. Like no one knows what happens <laughs> if he just says no. No one has a clue. And I wouldn't put past him to like challenge like, the very authority, right, of, you know, sort of one of the foundations of American business and, and American jurisprudence. It's just like, you know, it's like, who are you to tell me what to do? Like, I'm a judge. Well, who are you? It's like, I'm the richest person in the world. Don't you know Whatever the legal version of shit posting is, that's, that's yeah, where that's I think we end is. up. Yeah. So I think you're right, Felix. I think that is probably how that scenario does play out whether it's $7 billion or $20 billion or something in between, I mean, it'll be a nice boon for Twitter. The thing is, if it comes to that, though, I do wonder if shareholders are going to be like, I want that money. I want a special dividend. Right? Oh, they will definitely, yeah. yeah. They reckon uh, Twitter can run at a profit. They don't, Twitter doesn't need that cash on its balance sheet. 